0: We used to run out to my grandfather's gate uh, to stare at a car, because that was a technological marvel that we had very little access to. Running water was something that we had, however, it stopped all the time. Electricity went out all the time. So uh, I come from, a, as I tell people, from another planet and another time, obviously a different, different country. And so uh, I definitely have an appreciation for change in the sense that when uh, I first went to uh, visit my parents in Dubai, my parents left India when I was about five or six years old. And my father got a, a job in Dubai. And I didn't remember going to Dubai, which was still pretty, uh, pretty, you know, far behind the United States or Europe. Nonetheless, they were so far ahead of India in terms of development. And uh, then coming here at 18 to the United States to go to college, and seeing what the United States had done in in really 30, 40, 50 years uh, was just astonishing, incredible. And so I have a deep appreciation for America, for what it's done, for the extraordinary. I mean, there's nothing else you can say. What other country has a 200 year track record of this country of incorporating innovation, using it to make people's lives better?
1: My guest today is Paul Manpilly. Paul retired from managing money when he was just 42 years old and at the top of his game. In 2006, the owners of $3 billion firm Kinetics Asset Management recruited him to manage their hedge fund. After he joined, the firm's assets under management soared from $3 billion to $25 billion. Everyone took notice, from Barron's, who named the fund one of the world's best, to a prestigious foundation that invited Paul to take part in an investment competition it was hosting. The foundation wanted to see what he could do with $50 million. Paul was able to achieve a 76% return during the 2008-2009 financial crisis and won the competition. Paul has come a long way from his birthplace in India. Growing up in India, he attended boarding school until he was 16 years old and then arrived in the US a few years later. Today, Paul is the editor of Bold Profits, a research newsletter that has hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Now he uses his skills and experience as a financial analyst to provide investment research to Main Street investors. Some of Paul's recommendations have gone on to make triple-digit returns for his subscribers. I recently sat down with Paul to talk about how he achieved the American dream and what opportunities he sees for stocks as we enter what he coined America 2.0. Paul, thanks so much for coming on today's show. I greatly appreciate it. And I was really looking forward to uh, this conversation all all week, knowing you're coming.
0: Charles, a great honor to be with you. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this
1: since the moment you invited me on. So
0: super stoked to
1: be here. All right. Great, man. So, Paul, before we talk about what kind of great money manager you are and how you're giving your subscribers, zillions of them. I don't know. How many subscribers do you have now? I
0: believe it's something in the range. Profits Unlimited has, uh, which is our flagship uh, newsletter, has about 140,000 subscribers, something like
1: that. And then you have an e-zine, a free list, which has oodles of subscribers, right?
0: Uh, Bull Profits Daily, which is the free e-letter from uh, our sub-publisher that, you know, we're we're both part of the greater Banyan Hill family. Uh, Bull Profits Daily, the free e-letter, I believe has... In excess of three hundred thousand subscribers. Wow. To, so you get a lot, uh, of, maybe more. Yeah, maybe more. Sarah, Sarah, my publisher would be upset that I don't know this. <laughs> However, it could be much more, but it's at least 300,000.
1: Yeah, it just keeps growing. Just full disclosure, folks. Paul and I, uh, both are colleagues and good friends, and we work with the same publisher, Banyan Hill Publishing, which, and you'll see throughout this conversation, we have totally diverse viewpoints on the market and on investing. But we could still smile at each other and become friends and, and work for the same company because there's many ways to skin the cat. So no one has a monopoly on ideas.
0: This is true. And, 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 you know, Charles, you're a legend. You know, I, I remember reading of you uh, from when I was trying to make my way uh, on, on Wall
1: Street in New York. Oh, great, man. Good. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know, but that's nice to know. That's great to know. All right, Paul, before we get into to how well you've done and how you have really, I, I got to say, man, there were there industries, there are stocks. I, I, I just look at and say, I put them in my two hard pile and you go ahead and you recommend them and they go up three digits, re, three-digit returns uh, in pretty quick time. And I look and I say, how did I miss that? And then I just realize it's totally out of my circle of competence. So before we even get into that, and how big your circle of competence is and what you're looking at. You are, and this is not talked about much, you're really an American dream. You were born in India. And what was your life like there?
0: Um, My life in India was uh, like, time stood still in India when I was a kid, Charles. Um, We used to run out to my grandfather's gate uh, to stare at a car because that was a technological marvel that we had very little access to. Running water was something that we had. However, it stopped all the time. Electricity went out all the time. So uh, I come from, as I tell people, from another planet and another time, obviously a different different country. And so uh, I definitely have an appreciation for change. In the sense that when uh, I first went to uh, visit my parents in Dubai, my parents left India when I was about five or six years old, and my father got a, a job in Dubai, and I even remember going to Dubai, which was still pretty, uh, pretty you know far behind the United States or Europe. Nonetheless, they were so far ahead of India in terms of development, and uh, then coming here at 18 to the United States to go to college and seeing what the United States had done in in really 30, 40, 50 years uh, was just astonishing, incredible. And so I have a deep appreciation for America, for what it's done, for the extraordinary. I mean, there's nothing else you can say. What other country has a 200 year track record of this country of incorporating innovation, using it to make people's lives better? Uh, in every way. And so, you know, I I am incredibly grateful for having given this chance. And um, I just always have had a huge, huge thing in my heart for America and this belief in the American spirit, the American people. And in the end, in some of that sort of bleeds into how I see the world and, and companies that, you know, I believe that only Americans would ever even Think of, of making these companies. No one in India would ever, in, in the way at least I see it, think to start companies
1: like these. So you were born in India. Your parents leave when you're pretty young. What, five years old, you say, or so?
0: Right. Um, I mean, India was a dirt poor country um, when, uh, when I lived there. And uh, my father, like many other people that are enterprising, was looking to escape India And uh, my mother tells the story that um, he saw this tiny little ad in a newspaper. Those were the days of paper, uh, newspapers for this job in Dubai, which in that time, we're talking about the mid 70s, the 1970s, um, nobody's heard of Dubai. They just found oil. They were starting to recruit people to sort of develop that country. And my father applied for this job and he got this. And against everyone's advice, everyone told him not to go. And my mother tells a story that he told him, hey, I have nothing to lose. I am going to go. And that made him, because Dubai essentially was a dollarized economy because of oil, and he started to earn significantly more money than he did in India, which then um, allowed him to eventually send me to the United States to get an education. Certainly from India in that time, it would have been completely unaffordable for me to ever uh, come here to study and have my parents pay for it. So that's the sort of sequence of events that allowed me to end up being in the United States. So you went to boarding school when you were in India? That's correct, because um, at the time my father and my mother went to Dubai, there were really no schools there. It was so uh, early in its development. So for Indian people, education is primary. And my parents um, found boarding schools that would take uh, my sister and I. And so I spent... From about the time I was six, till I was 16 in boarding schools, uh, where I'd come uh, to see, uh, I, I saw my parents either once or twice a year, uh, either doing summer vacations and winter vacations. And the rest of the time, uh, I was really surrounded by other kids, uh, 300 other kids playing games. Uh, the, the, in India at that time, we had no television, there was no internet. So you played a lot, you read a lot, you talked a lot. And, and that was my childhood.
1: Well, so, you know, uh, to become a money manager and to become a successful one at that, uh, I've always found that you have to just rely on yourself, have confidence in what you do, and you have to look at the world in a way that if everyone says it's raining and you see it's sunny, you have to stick to your convictions. I just wonder, you know, just wondering out loud, that kind of upbringing, uh, you know, being living in – a country which is really third world. Back in the day, was really third world. One hundred percent. And really, I don't want to say raising yourself, but being a kid in a in a in a boarding school for your your formative years, that must have built a lot of self reliance.
0: Um, I, I believe that 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 way of, uh, of growing up. Definitely built uh, a lot of self-reliance, a lot of confidence in making decisions, uh, trusting your judgment, uh, despite perhaps any anybody else um, saying something, what to do. I mean, part of being in boarding school at that time was traveling by myself, both by buses, trains, planes, uh, both uh, within India and outside of it. And so responsibility and making decisions where... Um, uh, if you make the wrong decision, the consequences can be high. If you're a child traveling by yourself, um, you trust the wrong person, or you go in through the wrong place. Uh, definitely, in, in India of that time, things could go wrong, um, and so you you do have to make the right decisions uh, pretty much all the time. So, so, look, so that so definitely so drives a certain confidence.
1: Looking back on that, you know, I, I know you you have you have kids. I have kids, and we talk about it often. But could you see? when your kids in that kind of situation today it's like it, it boggles my mind um y- 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 there's no need to anymore and
0: you know i i always feel like there's an arc of development in terms of human uh, i guess the way we raise kids the way we lead our lives and so uh, for example there, there were no car seats you know even in the United States I, I, I believe that in the 1960s 70s perhaps even into the 80s and today obviously you know we know that oh you put you know a child in the car seat you want them to be high so there's an arc of development and I personally consider myself sort of lucky to have had the experience that I've had that my parents um, gave that to me. My mom and dad were generous enough to give me that opportunity. They picked a great school. There was no hardship of any kind. This was a very, very for India it was a very incredible school. Uh, it's still ongoing. We had a swimming pool. We had tennis courts. Uh, so this this was definitively no hardship. Yeah, I, I don't know. I also had great teachers. Uh, and a fantastic group of, of students around me
1: i guess you know i'm thinking of like victorian england sent off to a boarding school you know and no one comes uh, to even visit you on christmas but all right great it's, it's super <laughs> so so okay so you come to america you're 18 years old and you say you wake up one morning you say i want to be a hedge fund manager how does that work
0: i have always loved the stock markets charles i always loved i i always remember this this like i believe i was about 14 or 15 and Indian history I, in my in my book history book was something about the the 1929 crash, and I recall the story about the stockbrokers killing themselves, jumping off a building, and it just struck me as like, wow! So the stock market thing must be a very powerful thing that would make someone want to take their own life. And uh, to a kid in India that has no experience of the stock market, we, there might have been a very crude stock market in India in the 1970s. However, it's It had no real role in society. It's something that was undiscussed uh, by people. So this thing really like, wow, this must be a very powerful thing called the stock market. And it drove a a curiosity that persisted both in India. And then certainly once I came to the United States, I remember going to the library to go find books about the stock market thing. And, and and trying to read about it and understand it. And that is like the beginnings really of of, of my sort of like love for stocks, speculation, the markets, uh, and what sort of underpins them, what drives them.
1: You know, that kind of that kind of really goes with what Warren Buffett said, that he started investing when he was eleven years old, and he laments that he started late. He wish he started earlier, <laughs> you know. And and I found out that when I when I speak to and I've met throughout the years many legendary investors. Um and like yourself, they all started out young. It always was a fascination, not when you were 26 years old, but I remember reading, going to the library and reading uh, Robber Barons when I was 10, 11 years old and just, to- just I learned about monopolies and I learned about minerals and, and how you take market share. It just absolutely fascinated me. And even though Wall Street was only 40 minutes from my house, it could have been on the other side of the world. There was no, I had no opportunity to go there when I was a young kid. My father was a, was a working man he was a he was a warehouse manager, and I had no contacts and and it seems to me that you follow that same thing it 's that kind of burning desire that wow, this is a challenge it's exciting it's something I want to learn about it
0: this is right, and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about you know uh, most people that are good at at, at, at investing, speculating, whatever you want to call it, even trading, I mean, there's a natural curiosity that drives you to constantly push to ask a question to which there is a, a series of answers. There's definitively no single answer. And then there's an element where your curiosity pushes you then to act and to trust your judgment and to take on that uncertainty, which then if you are right, there is a reward right. for.
1: You know, so many people have asked me throughout the years, young guys, young girls coming out of school uh, I want to get into this game I want to manage money I want to be because you and I both were hedge fund managers I managed I started my own money management firm when I was only 22 23 years old and they said what what should I what trait do I need to have and I said if you love learning and love reading this business is a, is going to be a, a lot easier for you do you agree with that? 100 uh, I mean, percent. By the way, yes. by the way, as, as I say that, as I look at your bookcase of, <laughs> of well-worn, well-read books there, right? That's right. I mean,
0: uh, when most of these, I, I have to admit, I have not read all of them. I have read many, many of them. And if I was to pan this camera around, there's actually another bookcase of this size on the other side of my <laughs> wall. Um, and that's because uh, when you read a great book, The thing that I learned to do was to then go look at the sources that they cited and then buy some of those books. And now you have that chain reaction of stacking knowledge upon knowledge where you now have a whole series of ways of thinking, examples, analogies, understandings. That you can now bring to bear upon a situation and a judgment that you need to make, a decision that you need
1: to make yeah if, if you love learning and you love reading, this you're halfway there It's just temperament, but uh, it really has to be that curiosity and of of finding out stuff that is out there and you just start seeing it differently and I, I don 't think it's because as, as Buffett says, you don't need a genius iQ of one hundred thirty you, give, you said, you're giving away twenty points, and you still do okay. The point is that you have to be curious to keep learning and reading because most people don't. Just don't bother. This is true.
0: I believe that while many people want the rewards of investing, the work is something that is driven by love. Uh, You have to love it and to do it uh, innately. And it's hard to force yourself to do something that you dislike. Steve Jobs, in his speech, in his commencement speech, you know, if, you, if you're doing the work that you love, and Buffett talks about this,
1: it never feels like right, work. Right, You never it work never feels you never like a work. day in your life. If you love what you do, That's you right. never work a day in your life. All right. That's beautiful. Right. Love it. That's so we're, so now you're in the United States. You go to college. You didn't go to get any MBA or anything. You went to a regular, what, Montclair in Jersey? Right. This
0: is a very first generation college kind of school. And the reason for it was that uh, my father could afford it. Uh, it was much cheaper. It was, it was called Montclair State College back then. It's called Montclair State University. It takes its name after the, the, the town that it's located in. And my father could afford it. And it was uh, essentially gave me, essentially a ticket. Uh, it had the benefits of being near New York. And so I, I could, uh, I do remember going in college to go visit the stock market, which was a very thrilling affair. However, I, I could never really connect what was going on on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange back then it was floor traded rather than computer traded like today to what what I was interested in. And I came to that part of it much, much later on. However, it was near New York and it gave me a base of of some things. And to some extent, I wonder if you feel the same, which is that it also, a lot of what was, and I believe still being taught, which is efficient market theory and these things also kind of in time showed me what to ignore over time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Efficient market hypothesis, as just to just to share with with our listeners, is the market is totally efficient, and the price you see trading for that day for that company has the smartest and best minds all agreeing. So there's no inefficiencies in the market. But uh, you know, it's like the bumblebee. I don't know if this is true or not, but no one told the bumblebee it can't fly because its wingspan is too small. Uh, <laughs> the efficient market uh, hypothesis really doesn't account for so many people who have a consistent approach that's based in rationale and research and logic that have consistently beaten the market over decades. And, you know, like Buffett says, uh, Paul, that it's always great to play a game against someone who believes you can't win. So to play against efficient market theory is, great, is a great game to play.
0: For someone like him
1: that, I mean, I Buffett could never exist
0: in the efficient market world. I mean, how could somebody accumulate 10% of (laughs) Coca-Cola? In the inefficient, I mean, and this is where he's known to be buying and still even having, you know, uh, with people seeing that they still, nobody was,
1: market was so inefficient. They were even unwilling to copy him. Unbelievable. You remember, (laughs) I want to talk about 07, uh, the the financial crisis, 07 through 09. But uh, before I talk more about that, I just want to touch on one thing is, Efficient market uh, hypothesis went through the roof, went, went through the floor, really. It doesn't make any sense when Treasury bills traded negative, negative. So you gave the, the, here was intelligent investors more concerned with the return of their money than the return on their money. In an efficient market, that should never happen.
0: Right, Right. And it did. The efficient market, yeah, is, is missing certain very basic elements, such as human psychology is
1: sort of missing right. in that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So before, before we even talk about that, I just want to get on to how you started. Uh, um, you went to college, regular liberal, and by the way, which is just absolutely amazing, is, and I love what you said, because I only went to one year of Brooklyn College, and then I dropped out to trade on the floor of New York Futures Exchange, so, uh, Smart yeah, that, Smart.
0: <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I could have done that. You, you, you definitely saved yourself a lot of time, oh. effort, and this is why you're so far ahead, uh, uh, of everyone in terms of like, you know, you got started early and you also went through that independent thinking process of being on your own.
1: So well done. Thank you. I just couldn't sit still. You know, I was sitting in sc- <laughs> class and listening to lectures and I said, gosh, I got to get out of here. So I got my education on the floor of the New York Futures Exchange. And you went to Montclair. And this is just a, i just want to point this out. There are so many, so many students throughout this country who are no longer students, but are saddled with enormous, enormous college debt, which I don't know how they're getting out of. And it's so hard to even walk away from. Uh, I love what you said that Montclair was a college your father could afford. You walked out, I'm sure, with very little debt, if any out of college?
0: Right. I mean, I'm also grateful that my father mostly paid uh, for a lot of my college. I did work to the extent that I, I, I could on campus and things like that. However, college didn't never costed uh, the kind of money that it eventually began to cost starting the late 90s and early 2000s. And I believe that even the vast majority of my cohort of fellow students had no debt um, and would never have considered college uh, if they felt they were going to go anywhere near as far into debt as the current generation of millennials yeah. and some number of Z are
1: also in. Yeah, well, what, you know, they're starting 10 yards behind the starting line. Just, you know, waking mm-hmm. up one morning, you're $150,000, 200000 of debt with a college degree, and you can't get away from that debt anymore. I think it follows you everywhere. Uh, if you try, they garnish your salary. So there's no, there's no caves you can hide in where you don't have to pay it. And I know some of my sons, some of my boys' friends, uh, um, they're in really serious situations because no matter what they're making now, they still have to keep feeding this debt with numbers like 150, dollars $200,000. And interest keeps growing and growing. This is
0: right. And uh, personally, uh, as I always feel for this generation, that they have to carry this Nonetheless, I have to say that you know, I have many millennial friends, and I am always raised up by their general sense of optimism, despite what has been a very challenging mm-hmm. period for this generation. They see their parents liquidated in the 2000 crash, 9/11 occurs, which then sets a whole series of things underway. Obviously, a uh, kind of bear market, and you know, and, and technology and innovation unfolds post 2000 of you have 2008 where they themselves now get liquidated. And then we've had a series of crashes really since then, which very few people talk about. I remember really a very difficult trading environment in 2011, again in 2014, certainly for technology stocks, a genuine crash, 50% in the at the end of 2015, early 2016. And so this is a generation that um, whatever their upbringing, they are now <laughs> totally uh, quite toughened up by experience of, of going through this world. And I believe, I believe in them because ultimately I believe in America. And I believe that ultimately this generation will come through uh, and, and do end up doing great things. And yes, they're starting a little bit behind. However, there's time and I believe in them. And I believe that they're going to make
1: a comeback and the history will be written at the end rather than right great. now. Love it. Love it. Okay. So graduate college, you, Land on Wall Street in 2006. Tell me about that.
0: Um, So I actually uh, graduated in uh, college from Montclair in 1991. And I wanted to, in some way, shape, or form, follow that instinct of wanting something to do with markets. Now, coming from Montclair State, there was no real ability to get into any of the skilled parts of Wall Street being a trader, being an analyst, being a portfolio manager, those are all largely reserved for the elite folks, you know, the people that go to Harvard and all of those. Yeah, kids. Paul, I just, so I just I, wanted to interject
1: one thing here, just for our listeners to hear this, is there are many firms that will not even interview you if you did not go to an Ivy, and many firms wouldn't even interview you if you didn't go to Wharton or get an MBA. So when you're talking about, Paul, of, of trying to get into the upper crust into the real jobs on Wall Street, which pay the big numbers that everyone hears about, it's a very, very small group of people that can make that cut.
0: This is right. So I found a sort of a back office job at a company that's no longer around called Bankers Trust. And it was essentially do very clerical work. Nonetheless, it represented an in to at least the industry that I wanted to be in. And I refused offers that were actually for more money to be in, I remember a job offer from the limited to do import export processing, which actually sounded like fun. I could travel. However, I kept my eyes on the prize, which is that I wanted to eventually at that time, I wanted to be an analyst or a trader uh, because I felt that these were the two things, one processing information, second making decisions. And I felt that these are the two things that I really wanted to do. And how could I get there? I knew I could never get there directly So I had to go through a a winding road to eventually arrive at those places. So I I joined Bankers Trust, uh, as I believe the job was an account administrator. Essentially, I did some very sort of like, you know, uh, very simple, rudimentary accounting that um, was there. It was paperwork uh, of most. And then I was then able to then move to something that got me a little bit closer to money management. I was became um, uh, uh, an assistant portfolio manager at the private bank. And from there, I became an analyst uh, for a mutual fund, all within the same company. Banker's Trust got bought by the giant German bank called Deutsche Bank, mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. in there. And then from there, sort of, I'd sort of now arrived at the skilled positions and I continued to move on. Um, I left Bankers Trust and went to a Dutch firm called ING, where I was an analyst again. Um, and then eventually arrived at 2006 at Kinetics Asset Management and where I was sort of now where I wanted to be when I first graduated college, I was managing money where I had my fingers actually on the buttons, on the buy and sell buttons, where I could decide what to buy, what to sell, when to buy, when to sell, and that was in 2006. So it was, it was a long journey, but it's been well worth
1: it. Yeah, I just want to point something out, which is which I found at the more people I speak to, and the more people I interview, it's really more of the same, and it's really such a great lesson. Your first job, your first position, whatever, money is not, is, it shouldn't, should not be an issue. It's just getting your foot in the door. Just get into that environment. If you don't get on the bench, you can never get in the game. And you, you, you got a back office job way beneath what you really wanted to do, but it was the path to where you wanted to go. And uh, uh, that's uh, kudos to you. That's what many people just don't get. Everybody wants to, especially kids coming out of college, they want to start up here. And, and really, it, just get into the proper environment, the the. the the quality of the person will dictate how much they make, but you'll never know if you don't get into the game.
0: This is true. However, for sure, I'm sympathetic to the young folks. I was, while I went through that, I, 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 I doubt I was happy going through that. For sure, I wanted more money, more responsibility. Nonetheless, there were no choice. like To the extent I wanted where I, where I wanted to go, there was no choice than to take the paths. Uh, that were open to me, the doors to walk through the doors that were open, rather than focus on doors that were closed. I simply, here's a door that's open, let me walk through that. That led to another door right. that was open, right. let right. me walk through that. And, and the, that's definitely been my way.
1: See, my, my thing when I, I I couldn't get hired, I didn't have a college degree, I didn't have any connections. So I basically borrowed money to become a floor trader. And then when I started my own money management firm, I just did that simply because no money management firm would hire me. I, I, what What I well, my credentials? One year at Brooklyn College, you know, a year and plus of floor trading, I just said, you know, I have to make my own way. And, you know, it's, uh, as I say, it's basically balls and a vision. You just got to have that kind of attitude and you have the vision where you want to be. And it just really just every day just keep pounding away at it. There's no real secret to it.
0: Yeah, as they say in New York, when, when I'm staring at Charles, you have chutzpah. That's it, chutzpah. You got to have chutzpah. That's right, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> because it takes some serious guts to put your own money on the line for something that you have no gauge to know. Yeah. Is this going to work out? If so, when? And it's, 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 it's jumping without a net and good on you. Yeah, but you know what the
1: thing is, what was my downside, right? My downside was I was sharing a room with my brother in my parents' house. So if it didn't work out, I still had the bed. <laughs> you know, so what was my risk? I'll start again. Right. You know, it, wasn't, it right. wasn't a concern of failure. Failure was never an option because I figured I'm. I got to do this. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I'm not going to take a job working in a retail store or running a warehouse. Those things I have wanted to avoid at all costs. I wanted to get into right. this business. I said I'm going to find a way. And and you did the same. So that's great, man. That's really super. So you, you end up in 2006 at Kinetics. They let you manage money, and. You're there right before the world goes into the abyss, the financial world.
0: Right, right. I mean, uh, unfortunately, no, no one, uh, you know, told me <laughs> that <laughs> uh, prior prior to that. Um, nonetheless, uh, I, I I have no idea where you were in two thousand and six or two thousand and seven. However, if you were in New York, this felt like the top of the world, Uh, I can recall. It was good times all around. The real estate market was booming. The investment banks were booming. They were selling CDOs, CLOs. There was this air of what felt like extraordinary confidence. However, in hindsight, was clearly arrogance, hubris, um, and stupidity on some level, as we've been later found out and as after 2008. and so, um, yeah, as 2006 unfolded and 2007 unfolded, Kinetics was booming. I believe that when I joined Kinetics, uh, Kinetics had something like $3 billion under management. Um, a friend of mine who had actually started the firm, he'd started uh, the hedge fund at Kinetics with something like a quarter of a million dollars, which he begged. <laughs> and I think he said he took like 500 meetings just to get that seed money. And at the peak, Charles, the hedge fund had uh, about $5.6 billion in it, if I remember. It might have been like, you know, maybe higher, but that's, I remember seeing the statement at somewhere, I think it was November of 2007, $5.6 billion, and, um, and then like the, the Kinetics as a firm had 25 billion. so like in two years wow. it had gone it had gone 8x in terms of assets under management. And so we were on top of the world. We were you know people, everybody's like, everyone be my best friend uh, and Air kinetics best friend. And then 2008 unfolded. And uh, you can probably recall uh, the, the first sort of really big warning that something was wrong was Bear Stearns in February. Right. And you could, and, and, and the various interventions tried to make you forget it. And then there was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which sort of then preceded Lehman. what was now we know the big, really the big implosion, which was Lehman. Right. And from then on, the world was never the same.
1: All right. People don't, you never know, if you didn't live through that, <laughs> you don't really appreciate what an amazing job. Uh, Paulson did as as treasury uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury and Geithner and Bernanke to keep the world alive they, people weren't you know major corporations weren't able to make payroll the the financial right. world collapsed literally collapsed we capitalism was almost kaput
0: and I have to add Ben Bernanke yep. uh, who created on the fly uh, a number of programs to simply allow GE to have uh, enough money to make payroll because the commercial paper market was completely frozen. Uh, Nobody wanted to buy or uh, willing to lend. Everybody just wanted to hold cash, which then circles back to this efficient market view, which is like human psychology is such a critical element to the markets, to the economy. And you have to account for that. Uh, Nonetheless, 2008 was, you know, meant the end of all of that those good times the you know that's there and um and obviously you know people liquidated a lot of their funds and it was a difficult difficult period of time um certainly to be running a hedge fund that's you know all hedge funds as you know are levered up and i can recall uh moments of time because of course our hedge fund was uh you know like all hedge funds are seeing redemptions of trying to extract liquidity from the market when no one <laughs> wants to give it to right. you, and I learned a lot about trading and the element of human psychology of trading through that moment.
1: Yeah, it, it was just absolutely amazing. And the, and the problem is, is that every 10, 12 years we have another one of those in a different form because the original people move on. <laughs> you know, now the, now the new guys at the desk are 30 plus years old and they they were they were getting drunk in high sc- in college during 07 and 08. Now they don't have that experience and who knows what, but I don't want to talk about that as of yet. So 07, 08, you're managing a fund. Uh, they give you, I think you get a foundation gives you guys $50 million or so.
0: Right. So this is, you know, this just goes to show you that you would never write this in a script. So sometime in June of 2008, prior to people understanding that essentially one world was ending, um, a very prestigious foundation of one of my actually investment idols. Now they've asked me to, to keep their name out of anything that I mentioned because for privacy reasons, which I want to respect. And so they said, Hey, we are going to give, I believe it was eight money managers, $50 million a piece. And, um, there was, of course, a compensation structure associated if you won the competition, and I forget who the great, uh, the the big money managers were that were assigned. Uh, most of them are no longer around uh, f- from what I call. Nonetheless, they gave us fifty million, and there were special rules to this competition. You could only own. Um, it was a maximum of ten stocks that you could own. Um, there were you were not allowed to buy U.S. stocks. They could be ADRs, um, so no U.S. stocks. Uh, you couldn't have more than two stocks in any sector or industry, and so you, uh, so you could have less than ten, and we, you, you I think it was at
1: least two. So there were all these rules, and so and Paul, Paul, there was there was no shorting, or you were allowed to short a stock. Or?
0: No, there was no shorting allowed.
1: It was long only. So long only, no more than ten, or, no more than two per industry. Correct. So they and, and, and no and U.S. No, no, US. Okay. That limits the world down considerably.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, so I picked 10 stocks uh, and um, starting, I believe it was about, I, again, it's some, some time ago, I believe it was September, October, uh, right around, right before Lehman happened. Um, what I told our trading desk is that we are going to buy um, it might've been, I mean, it was pretty clear we were in a crisis by that point when Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac happened, um, um again, um, so we were going to buy over, I said, over four or five months, well, we're going to put this to work every week. And we had essentially, you, you know, what the, or, you know, it's called a program, a trading program. And so we just went and consistently bought these 10 stocks literally every day. Uh, for something like all the way into February or something like that, late Feb. And with that, we were done. February 09. So, February 09. Yes, February Okay, so, so just Correct. to
1: put this in context, uh, Lehman Brothers fails September 08. You're buying along the way. The bottom of the market is March 2009. And then it goes on an amazing bull market ride. So my question, to Paul, is why were you buying these stocks? What were you seeing that no one else... If the world was collapsing, what did you see that no one else saw?
0: Well, I'll tell you an anecdote as well around this. So um, prior to starting to buy, the foundation had asked us if we could notify them when we were going to actually use the cash that they had sent us. And so I remember writing the email to the foundation committee member and I remember the response back, really, you're going to buy into this? <laughs> and they said, uh, you're only one of two people that are actually going to utilize the money. Everyone else is going to stay in cash. So uh, I have no idea if that's what was persisted. But at that moment, and so I, I was
1: like, yeah, absolutely. But, but, we're wait, 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 <laughs> hold, let me interrupt you. This is a foundation, which we're, we'll go unnamed for now, where its founder and legendary investor made his marks by buying during, right before World War II. And you know when the when the country looked terrible it was coming out of the depression, the economy was just getting back, and prices were extremely depressed. You had to be a nut to be buying then and this this particular <laughs> person bought, and they give their money out, and you're one of two. It's just interesting how that worked out <laughs>
0: right um so you know um the 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 idea was some of the things that you mentioned, in other words um I try was tracking what Bernanke was doing, what Geithner was doing, uh, what Paulson was saying. And also there were some things that I could see even internal to us. In other words, I could see that we were, we had a flood of redemptions actually into August and September and actually into the actual implosion event, a lot of people had done 50, 60% of their selling. And while we did get a crush of additional selling, it was less intense, actually, than the selling that we had experienced actually prior to this. In other words, so um, – and certainly um, past that, there was a lot less intensity. Prices were being marked lower. However, we ourselves were seeing actually very little in terms of additional. It suggested to me that perhaps the people that decided they were, they were going to stay in, they're going to stay in. It was exa- exhausted.
1: It just exhausted
0: out oh, there. Right. And to the extent that these programs were going to work, interest rates were brought to zero. All those programs that Bernanke introduced to try and liquefy various markets. Um, you know, Obama was being elected. There was talk of a stimulus that might be larger. If any of this worked, some of this worked. I felt that there would be at least something that was a little bit better. And uh, I felt a little bit like my father. And I felt in the sense that obviously never said, hey, you know, we're going to come and extract, you know, a pound of flesh from you, you lose the money. They did say, go and try to make the money. And I felt that this was something that I had prepared for all these books I had read, all the situations I put myself in, both personally, professionally, making judgments in my personal accounts, that this was a price fight that I was ready for. And if you are unwilling to fight when you're given a chance at the price fight, then you don't deserve to be there. So I felt that this was my moment and I should take it. And we took it. And uh, that account, when they stopped counting, which was, I believe, of one year from, um, I think the point at which we started was up 76% wow. from that wow. time frame. So went over, uh, you know, so double more than doubled. I mean, not double, not quite doubled uh was like yeah 76 percent. so
1: the other nine other guys do
0: you know they never uh told us uh what the other ones did however we won and we know because they gave us an extra 50 million wow. to manage wow. Uh, wow. Uh, uh and that was the that was the prize for for winning is that you, they were going to give you additional money so you they double the value of assets that they would by the way give. for
1: those listening the way the hedge fund industry works the more assets you have the more fees you can charge so by giving you more money it's a happy day you get to charge more management fees and possibly incentive fees so it's oxygen it's oxygen for the hedge fund industry and especially
0: in 2009 while you while the rest of things were were going down we were getting money in and only that we got paid a a very nice performance fee for the original 50 million which was uh definitely very much appreciated oh
1: wow wow that's great man that's great okay you hit I don't know it doesn't get better than that right so making money while the world is collapsing coming out number one you decide at 41 42 pretty young age i'm out of here
0: yeah i I had kids Uh, i had i had my son um you know uh, in in early 2008 um and i was living in new york and um i never could really see myself raising my kids in new york and it's um, certainly not in the way that I was then at that time, the, the hedge fund lifestyle of like needing to travel all the time to go visit clients, go raise money. And I wanted to make a break from there. And that was something that was in the back of my mind, certainly 2008 simplified my choices. And it made me think of time a little bit like the way COVID today is simplifying choices and 9-11 did that as well. And I felt that, well, I want to raise my kids in a a different place. And I decided in 2010 that I would like to leave New York and, and go uh, someplace else where I could be in a, in a different place. So I moved uh, to North Carolina and left New York. However, I kept my job because um, the internet by then was a big enough part of how everyone uh, operated. I felt that as long as I had an airport and, a, and an internet connection and obviously a phone that I could travel when I needed to communicate with anybody, Um, in many ways, I anticipated the the work from home movement, uh, with tools like zoom or anything like that, it would have been even easier. Nonetheless, it was there enough uh, that you could, you could really, you know, operate in that way. So I made that choice to, to leave New York and move to North Carolina in, in, in 2010 or so. And, um, from there being that I was a little bit ahead of where the management of kinetics was, um, they felt that, well, that having someone in North Carolina was perhaps like some, something that was a little bit difficult for them to want. And so we parted ways uh, amicably. And, um, and that's how I ended up uh, in this business that we are both in, uh, in the investment newsletter advisory business, um, in looking around for things to do. Um, there were a couple of things that 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 really uh, were, became something that I felt like this is my moment to do something. One is that I've always felt that certainly that I want to do something that I could really affect more people's lives. If I was good at doing something that I would like to do it for more people, because oftentimes, as you know, Charles, I mean, money management, I mean, you have to have money to give money to somebody to manage. And a lot of the folks that you and I now serve, they have a lot less money than the clientele that we used to serve. And so I wanted to kind of switch teams. I wanted to serve regular people. And if I believed in what I was doing that, then I could try and serve much more people, uh, many, many more people, and and that was something that now I could do by entering the investment newsletter advisory business, where the entry is what forty nine dollars. Your newsletter goes for forty nine dollars. Same thing, mine, which really just about anyone can afford. Right. So that, that's that's the choice I sort of made. I left. I parted ways, and then I was looking for an opportunity It allowed me to sort of step away from what I was doing and step into, again, another open door. Uh, I knew someone that was at Agora, uh, who I'd met when uh, in a different life when I used to write a blog on behavioral finance. And that person was intrigued by my blog. They came to meet me and like so interesting, like literally seven years later after that connection, I end up at Agora, which owns Banyan Hill, our publisher and uh, he recruits me in, um, and that begins my journey in this business. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, absolutely outstanding. So um, you started Bull Profits about how many years back, 2015 or 16
0: or so? Um, uh, so essentially that starts in uh, 2016, June 1st of 2016 is the first issue, uh, Profits Unlimited goes out, um, and we issued our first buy recommendation associated with uh, a video presentation, a promotion, as they call it in our business, on the internet of things. And we recommended SG Microelectronics, which is a, a chip company. Uh, and that was our very first recommendation. And that's how the Profits Unlimited story begins.
1: So in both markets. your approach, <clears throat> when you started your investment advisory, your, your newsletter, really, your approach was to look for stocks that are on the cutting edge and about to Uh, to to enter a new era, for example, Internet of Things wasn't as popular then as it is today. It's kind of ubiquitous now, but back then it was still early. Right. It it was still something that people could uh, find
0: out about if they were really reading technical journals and things like that. However, it was felt that it was still five to seven years ahead. In other words, a lot of the protocols were still sort of raw, security was unworked out. And certainly at that point in time, uh, chip companies were seeing none of the volumes that would eventually begin to appear now that you have hundreds of thousands of devices uh, connected to the internet from all different areas. I counted in my house, I, uh, I, uh, I have 23 devices connected to the internet. I've got smoke detectors, thermostats, security cameras, locks, obviously, computers, cell phones. So it anticipated that world. And I generally tend to be an early adopter. Right. And so in in 2016, I already had begun to put some of these things, internet connected switches and things like that. So I I had a good semblance of understanding of how this was going to unfold.
1: And over the years, Paul, it wasn't a one hit wonder. You've had multiple, multiple triple digit gains. I think the... um, Several stocks you had over 500%, four, 500 percent, four or five baggers. Some of you had, I think, a, a little even more than that. But uh, this wasn't a one-time thing. You have an approach that basically goes with a six-step process. You just don't take any stock or any company. It goes through a filter of yours, right?
0: Right. I, I call it going upness, which many people uh, hate. Uh, I, I consider myself a medium term speculator. In other words, generally speaking, I'm in something for three to five years. If it can continue, then I, I'm going to be in it a little bit longer than that. Uh, however, that that's my viewpoint. And so going upness is a six step system. And the essence of it is really in the sense that the gains that you yet ultimately do come somebody come from someone paying a higher price and to focus my process on that. And, uh, and then that's ultimately the distillation of 15, 20 years of reading, thinking, interacting, which is that, what is the benefit that I want to get out of the market? And for me, it's price gains in that three to five year time period Sometimes it's related to a technological development that's underpinning it. Nonetheless, the actual price gain is delivered by the next person coming in and bidding the price up, perhaps to want to own it. Perhaps they themselves are a speculator. However, I rarely focus on their motivations. I'm focused on my price. And generally speaking, I'm early enough that I can also leave ahead of perhaps the very, very speculative peaks that that might come later that might risk all of the gains. How do you figure out the price to pay for the stock? Um, So in general, uh, I I just generally focus on um, the fact that early on, most people tend to be too price sensitive. um, uh, And then much later on, they're completely insensitive. So being that generally speaking, I'm in in this current market, technological trends uh, quite early, most people will underestimate the size of the growth, the magnitude of the growth, as well as how long that growth is going to continue. And as a result, in the near-term timeframe, something may seem very, very expensive. Uh, Netflix might be a good example of it in the sense that if you believe that just their existing business is all that they're going to have, then you would say well that's a very expensive stock if you were willing to think three to five years ahead and see a continuation of that growth at a very high magnitude then you would be far less price sensitive in the current period and you'd be willing to take it on so uh, those kinds of assumptions which are a little bit of thin air you look forward and there's nothing in front and you have to make a judgment, which is that, do you believe this? Do you have conviction that this is going to unfold? Do you have some understanding of what's there? And oftentimes with many of these things, I'm an early adopter. I was using Netflix in the late nineties. And, uh, so oftentimes I, I follow my own instincts. Uh, you'll see the Apple computer behind me. So I bought that, that computer in 2003, just as really Apple was making themselves very much into a mainstream brand. So, um, and even very early on, Apple stock was thought to be priced too high. Mm-hmm. And uh, much later on, when once a lot of the gains were in, people felt that, you know, now it's more reasonably priced. But the persistence of growth was very high at a very high level. So I,
1: I think the difference between you and I, just for an example, uh, there's the company as it stands now, which more or less we could both value the same way and figure out what that's worth. Then there's the X right. factor. Where do you see it three to five years out? So... That's where it's like in the cartoons, the, car, the coyote going over the cliff and keep running and there's nothing under it and then it eventually falls. It's how much is one willing to pay for that future? And if you have a high right. level of confidence and it's a very high probability event, then you're willing to pay much more because it's, it's selling for a pittance at where it is now. So right. I, think, I think that's what a lot of investors just don't get. It's not that you're going off and paying any price. It's that your research, uh, your you're, you're examining the industry and seeing the trend. It's a very high probability event that this company will produce X, even though it doesn't look like that today. Do I more or less have that right with you? Um, approximately, in, in, it's a
0: judgment call in the end, because at the moment, there's a lot of questions. Uh, Tesla is a great example of this, Charles. I mean, you know, um, today it's worth more than every car company, I believe in the world put together and the standard way of seeing it would say, well, obviously that's a bubble. Uh, However, if you look out five, seven years and it turns out that they are going to dominate the new industry, people might challenge me on that of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. So, one is a tech. There's there's a energy shift and a technology shift there, uh, of what potentially is a much larger industry. In other words, where the existing industry sort of goes away, and now you have autonomous electric transportation, and they're going to have, let's say, a forty percent market share. Well, that's a multi-trillion dollar business, and for them to have a persistent market share five, seven, ten years from now, if you believe that with confidence, and you have no issue paying the price of that. So it all then really comes down to how much confidence are you willing to put into this? And obviously, if you get it wrong, the outcome can be very, very poor. So it's definitely a different way to go through the world.
1: So you just a few years ago, about a year or so ago, you came out with and you coined, and I think you were one of the first, I haven't seen it anywhere else other than you, was America 2.0. Just in two sentences, what the heck is America 2.0?
0: Uh, America 2.0 is essentially uh, a view of the world that says that there is an existing world that is going away and is being replaced by a new world of technologies, of ways of doing things, products and services that is going to totally supplant everything that exists today in a very similar way to what you might have experienced if you lived about 100 years ago, where you had multiple technological trends all occur about the same time in transportation with the steam engine, steamship, all the way to the plane, uh, communication, telegraph, telephone, television, all sort of all these technologies stacking up, all approximate at the same time, which completely altered the experience of life for Americans. And I know that if you were to talk to a, um, I forget what the right word, centenarian and you said, Hey, they have actually now are going through sort of like their third iteration of sort of human life. One uh, that they were born into, one that they sort of come to pass in their teens and early twenties. And this is a completely different way of like this internet digital sort of revolution, completely supplanting old ways, through new ways. And that is encapsulated in one term, America
1: 2.0. You know, if we had this conversation back in February of last year, February 2020, it still would have been fuzzy. But by the end of 2020, it makes all the sense in the world where we had more technological changes and innovation that pushed pushed it, and they say 10 years in advance, but way, way, way uh, much further down the line, for example, working at home, uh, internet connections, broadband, Zoom, uh, school, buying cars—it just absolutely just blew everything up in a really short span of time. That's hundred percent right. And the thing is that it's—it only feels
0: like it all happened last year. The truth is is that those have been sitting there winding up like like coiled springs, just waiting, waiting increasing their capability, increasing their competence, increasing their ability for more and more people to adopt it immediately. And that is often the nature of innovation that it never diffuses in the way that people imagine. It's created, it sits there, the existing technology continues to dominate for a long period of time. It's first slow and then it's sudden. Right, it's a hockey hockey
1: stick kind of uh, amazing adaption. That's right.
0: And that allows the technology to mature, to go through the period, for a company to build a business model around it so there's enough benefit. And now for perhaps the lead to be big enough over the existing technology where it makes complete economic sense, social sense, behavioral
1: sense, for a lot of people to adopt it. Right, like for example, I think what a great example is Zoom. Nobody, you know, mentioned Zoom, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, a few people used it. Now it's, it's become a verb. (laughs) <laughs> this is correct.
0: No different than Google. Google. Uh, I, I can recall Google coming, uh, the first time I started to use Google in the late 1990s and how easy it made my job as an analyst. And that became a verb as well, to Google things. Right. Uh, in other words, there's no other way to do Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable.
1: So Paul, yeah. we're wrapping up. We got to wrap up. We, I'd like, you got to come back again. Promise me uh, we can do this a couple of months from now because I'd love to sit and uh, there's hours we can talk, uh, if we talk for, but just don't have the time. 100%. So I want to leave our listeners with this: You were right with Internet of Things, America 2.0. You picked this before COVID, so you didn't have any idea that the innovation was going to happen this quick. And as smart as y'all, I don't think you picked that one. That just you happened to be in the right. It was who saw that.
0: Where do you? Hey, see I, don't, I would never pick that way of like a diffusing innovation one where the other. Ones, yeah.
1: Where do you see if I had one good trend that I wanted to ride? as let's say we were doing this award and I would give it you 10 stocks, but here I'm going to chisel it down to maybe two or three industries. What two to three industries do you see over the next three to five years that are going to catch a tsunami wave? And this innovation that we have with Internet of Things, America 2.0, is just going to be as plain as the nose on my face. What would that be? Um,
0: the easy one, the really easy one that you can see um, is in finance and money. This is a world that has been coddled by regulators where they've they've stayed away from most innovation, essentially just ring-fencing themselves, Uh, and now the innovation is upon them, uh, whether it be through financial apps of various kinds. Uh, I believe the current financial system as it stands is decrepit, it's obsolete, it's creaking, and um, I believe there is going to be an explosion of introduction of product services that you can see that is you're going to really where uh, the way that we get loans, the way we bank, the way we do all the things that are important to human life is going to radically change in the next three to five years where the old way will just seem so bureaucratic, so cumbersome, so expensive, so inefficient. And so I would say that's a solid trend where it's, Happening. What, what would you the what would you pick
1: market. What would you pick to invest in that What would you get an ETF or or, or a, a particular company? Um,
0: in 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 our portfolios, we there's uh, companies that 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 uh, are widely available and talked about. I'm sure you actually use them, whether it be PayPal or Cash App, um, and and Venmo. These are all things that if you talk to people, they're starting to use. And uh, the existing crisis of COVID, where people no longer want to touch paper money. That has really acted as a huge accelerant for this where now so many people no longer want to take cash. Whereas before you needed to persuade people to do that, now it's like, absolutely, they're willing to take an app. So the, the companies that control these technologies, PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, then there's you know new innovations coming in insurance. Uh, there's company like Lemonade and Root that are like bringing this digital revolution into, into insurance. However, right now, you would have to have some faith that this is going to unfold, and second, that this is the company that is going to benefit from it. So there's always risks in making these bets, which is that even if you're right about the trend, you still have to pick the right companies, and this is why most people prefer to wait until the signs of success are much clearer.
1: Right, right, right. So, Paul, where could people get in touch with you at boldprofits.com?
0: I believe that the uh, the place that they can go is Paul Manpilly Guru. That's sort of like the hub uh, website where all the publications, including how to sign up for Bull Profits, our free e-letter, is on, and also description of all the various uh, newsletter services that go under Bull Profits under my name, including Profits Unlimited that I refer to.
1: Beautiful, and you know, I don't agree with all your picks. I agree with some of them, but the point yeah. is, it makes interesting reading. It makes you think, and. It, you're looking at things, not where they are today, but where they're going to be three to five years out. And you've been so right for so long a period of time. So uh, all the power to you, my friend. That's fantastic. fantastic. Charles, it's
0: always an honor and I appreciate your compliments. I consider you a legend and a role <laughs> model.
1: and Thank you so much. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you being on the show. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.